The letter of James teaches us about the good life. It's written by Jesus' half-brother. It's included in the New Testament. And in this letter, it fleshes out what wisdom in action looks like. James is in a good place to be able to describe this because Jesus was his brother. So he had an opportunity to see wisdom up close and personal. Wisdom, we talked about last week, is spiritual intelligence. It's not about acquiring a body of knowledge. Wisdom isn't measured measured biblically by how much we know the Bible. That's one of the factors, but that's not the only factor in terms of how we quantify wisdom. Wisdom is measured by how we live our lives, not just by how much information we have amassed. And specifically in James, wisdom is evidenced by how we use our words. And how we use our words differentiates two different kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom from above and wisdom from below. And so this morning we're going to look at the difference between that. Wisdom, but wisdom can come from two different sources. Let's talk about wisdom from above first. Uh, In your worship folder there's a couple of verses written out and we'll try to trace what James has to say about wisdom. Think about the root of wisdom. It says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. We looked at this last week, and so what we understand then is that wisdom is rooted in belief in God, belief that God does a couple of things in situations that we might not want to exist in. Uh, What he does, he gives us the ability to produce maturity via endurance, and that's one of the things that we learn about wisdom. It's the byproduct of existing in places that we really wouldn't want to exist in if we had a choice. and But what it allows us as we learn to endure, it's really endurance that provides the grist that allows us to mature spiritually. So what it means then is that if we are to mature spiritually, it will require that we experience exposure to some things that we would want to move out of our life if we can, if we could, but we can't. And it's learning to live in tension. And belief in God, that's one thing that belief in God means. Belief that even though I seem to be spiraling, that it's not that God has let me go. It's not that he's absent. He's helping me to learn to live in a situation in order to allow me to become mature. Another thing belief in God means is that belief in God's ability to provide wisdom that fuels the ability to endure. Again, there's a, there's a prayer request here. That if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously without finding fault, and it will be given him. So say you're in a situation that you have a family situation, a social situation, a financial situation. It really might be trying to cope with the loss of a loved one. When they were so much a part of your life, you really don't know what it's like to move on. And in that place where you can't get them back, what God says, ask me, ask him. God, I need wisdom. And the wisdom won't mean that the situation 
will become simple. What it means is that he will provide you with the ability to remain in it, but not be crushed by it. That's what wisdom does. Uh, Leslie Gould said, sometimes God calms the storm. Sometimes God calms the storm. You ask him, if you're in a storm, you ask him, and sometimes he does calm it. But then she went on to write, sometimes God lets the storm rage and calms his child. Wisdom allows us to live in tension, not to escape it from it. That's what we looked at last week because it's significant because when desires are frustrated, we're driven to make something happen. Emotions come from the Latin word emotere, that which gets us moving. It's the word from which we get the word motion. Emotion are desires and feelings that move us to do something. When you're emotional, you want to do something with your hands. You want to do something with your feet if it's a positive emotion. You want to move towards the thing that you want to embrace. If it's a negative emotion, you want to change something so that you're not accosted by grief and fear. And, and again, that's what emotions do. They move us to take action. Um, emotions scream, don't just sit there, do something. But what wisdom whispers is don't just do something, sit there. And wisdom allows us to sit in places that we might not want to sit. Um, when our needs are unfulfilled and our desires are frustrated, we have several choices. We talked about it last week. This is by way of review. We can satisfy our desires. That's one. Provide the thing that we want or get rid of the thing we don't want. Satisfy our desires. Or if we can't do that, we might silence our desires. And so we can't change our circumstances. So what we do is we just push down the things that we want and we try to close them behind doors. So to satisfy silence, sometimes we can't do either of those. So we submerge them. And that's what addiction can be about. You know, if I have a mood-altering relationship with a substance or an experience, that thing allows me to submerge my frustrated desires. And the problem is, with addiction, that it creates a mood-altering experience with something that I need more of to get less relief. You understand that? So I need to do more things to get less distance from the thing that I want to be distanced from. And it's an ineffective way of managing desires, but that's one thing that's possible. Satisfy, silence, submerge, or soothe. Soothe the desires. And that means we can't get rid of them, but we make them so that they're not as tormenting, they're more manageable, at least for today. At least for today, they're manageable. Jesus is an example for us. He experienced connection with the Father that was unhindered. And what was interesting, he leveraged connection with the Father to satisfy his desires? No. He was tempted to turn the stone to bread. He said no. Silence the desires? If he throws himself down from the wall, you know, his wondering if God was with him would be satisfied, but he said no to that. Submerge the desires. If you have all the glory of the world, that would somehow make these desires less apparent, but he didn't either. He did not leverage his connection to satisfy, silence, or submerge. He leveraged his connection with the Father to soothe his desires. You're with me. Even though I'm in this wilderness, you are producing things here. You're providing the ability to 
for me to endure. This is how Jesus managed. And this is how he was able to respond wisely. That's the root of wisdom. The fruit of wisdom, look what it says. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Humility, that word means gentleness. Here's what, a, here's what gentleness is. It's, it's the description of a medicine. Say you've got a burn. Say you've got a burn, maybe a sunburn, which might be happening to some of us over the course of the summer. Um, what happens if you put the ointment on it, it soothes the burn. And, and the influence of the medicine was called gentle. That's with gentle. It's a soothing medicine or something that promotes a sense of relief. And that's what it says when it gives a picture of what wisdom produces. Wisdom provides an ability to be gentle, to, to relate in a soothing way to yourself, in a soothing way to other people, not to create more tumult, but to bring a sense of calmness, perspective. That's what wisdom and gentleness brings. Wisdom allows us to live in tension and, and allows us to respond in a gentle manner, at least wisdom from above does. But there's, remember, there's two kinds of wisdom. There's wisdom from above, which is gentle. And wisdom from below is another matter. Um, the letter is written to Jewish Christians who are scattered among the nations, and they're dispersed into the Roman Empire. And, he's, and what is he going to talk about is the bad life. There's lots of, he has lots of data. You know, again, if you know anything about the Roman Empire, it had its share of problems. There's no short of decadence in the Roman Empire. They lived by a philosophy, at least some of them did, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And that created some real excesses. I think I told you this before. They had a room in some of the wealthier places called, and you'll understand exactly its purpose when I tell you what the name of the word, the, the room is. It was a room that you used on the, on, in the midst of parties. If you wanted to continue to party, but needed some relief in doing so, it was called the vomitorium. And so if you were a little bit tanked, there was this room called the vomitorium, and that you would go to take care of issues in the vomitorium so that you could get back into the fray, and you could experience some relief anyways. Um, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. It wasn't just decadence, but there were social evils. Uh, there was the treatment of slaves. And if you have any, if you've done any reading about how slaves were treated in the Roman Empire, it was ghastly, ghastly. And the treatment of unwanted children. If the child wasn't the child that the family wanted, they were tossed outside in, and exposed in the cold. And one of the things the Christian church did was gathered up these abandoned infants. And there was a lot of things that James could write about if he's writing about the bad life. He could talk about, he could talk about moral decadence. He could talk about social evils. And you know what's interesting? He's not writing to society as a whole. He's writing to the church in particular. So here's the question. What do you target? when you're targeting the church? What are the issues 
that the church wrestles with more particularly. Now, surely there's morality issues in the church, but at this time, it wasn't the major thing that the churches were wrestling with, nor churches in general. Nothing. In, in, in fact, Roman, the Roman Empire, they esteemed Judaism. They saw that the worship of one God had a sanity to it, and they really liked the moral character of the Jews. And there was about 10% of the, the Roman Empire was Jewish. And so the Jews had a sense of standing. And, and so the Romans looked at the Jews and said, that's a good way to live. These are moral, upright people. So morality wasn't the issue that the Jewish Christian church dealt with. What was the issue? But it says there was a wisdom from below that was a problem. Let's look at what, what's that. So he says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, or the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. Wisdom from below is characterized by two things, and that's the things we've got to understand. Bitter envy and selfish ambition. Bitter envy seems to be about religious zeal. It's hard-edged spirituality. It's the sense of someone who is a know-it-all, somebody who has all the answers and is not afraid to tell everybody about the answers that they have with some degree of vehemence and vigor and verve. It isn't that these individuals don't care about the things of God. That's not the problem. Now, that can be the problem, that there was a lack of concern about the things of God, but it wasn't the problem here. It's not that they lacked zeal. It's that they had it. But the zeal was edgy, pushy, hard-edged. Do you understand that? That's kind of what it was like, an aggressive, hard-nosed spirituality, bitter envy, and selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is a... is is an interesting word. It has to do with the influence of someone who creates divisions, and they do so by campaigning. So if I am running for office, you know, there's a lot of signs, and so in very heated political campaigns, what happens? What will I do? Selfish ambition would mean that I would elevate my qualities, my record, and I would inform you about my opponent. And I would say things about my opponent. That's what's happening in the church. And we'll apply it. But what's happening, individuals who are very zealous are talking about what they know and what their opponent doesn't know very well. The other guy leading another house church. That's what's happening here. Let me give you an example of campaigning. At the start of the McCarthy area, the McCarthy area, Floridian Claude Pepper was one of the Senate's most outspoken liberals, and he ended up on the conservative hit list. Um, George Smathers then was running for office against him, and, and he, he listed and brought to, into the open the vices of Claude Pepper, whom he called the Red Pepper. The red pepper. So here's here's the vices Smathers um, disclosed, much to the people's horror, 
that Pepper was, and this is true, Pepper was a known extrovert. His sister was a thespian. And his brother, practicing homo sapien. I don't want to have to be the informer of this, but he went to college and he actually matriculated. Worst of all, he practiced, horrifies me to even say it, practiced celibacy before marriage. And so naturally, rural voters were horrified and Pepper lost. <laughs> Uh, this, this is the kind of stuff that was happening within the church. Zealous believers were drawing away adherents after themselves, trumping their own wisdom, what I know, what I could tell you, and downplaying what you would get from this other house church over here. This is the problem that James is targeting. They're expressing wisdom by challenging the teaching and leadership of others, and they cast this in the guise of, standing for the truth and standing for wisdom and serving God. And you know what James does say? There is a wisdom, but there's two kinds of wisdom. One's from above. And that's evidenced by gentleness that comes from wisdom. And there's one from below that is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. And James casts this type of harsh zeal and selfish ambition it doesn't come from up there. It comes from down there. It's divisive. It's not the kind of things that Jesus does. This is what James targets. And this is what he found to be dangerous. It's also what James is targeting in his teaching about the tongue. You know, there's a in chapter 3, look, let's listen. I'll read chapter 3, 1 through 6, and it's in your worship folder. When James is speaking about abuses of the tongue, he's applying it to church leadership. And how do we know that? Look at the first verse. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So what he's targeting then is religious leaders who are campaigning against one another. And then he goes on to talk about the tongue. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man able to keep his whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. What's happening? The role of rabbi was esteemed within Judaism. And so the Jewish Christian church, there was a number of people who wanted to identify themselves as, well, I hate to say it, but I have the gift of teaching. And contrary to what my beloved brother might think, have, have you ever heard him teach the Bible? 
and this is the kind of thing that's going on. They're vying for a piece of the leadership pie. And this is the thing that James is talking about when he points to watch what you do with your tongue. You can lay claim to a wisdom and claim to have biblical knowledge, but when you expound biblical knowledge, but slander or backbite individuals who are part of the body, that doesn't work. It might seem like wisdom, but it's from the wrong direction. And that's what James is getting at here. Um, it seems so commonplace to us that it excites little attention. Um, however, James hits it head on. Um, those James addresses saw it as standing for the truth, and so what they did, they boasted about it. They boasted about it. They made no bones about talking about this or that individual and, and not just defining the truth, which is necessary, but character assassination, which is a very different thing. You can challenge the message. In fact, Paul said you should. You can challenge a message without slandering the messenger. You could look at what the truth is. And um, well, that wasn't happening. They were cutting each other down in order to raise themselves up, and they were justifying this type of behavior. He said, don't boast about it. Don't claim to be standing for God because you really aren't. And denying the truth, it's no small matter. Look what it says. It says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil practice. Every time you find an every in the Bible, disorder in every, that's something I always tune in on. And you know what it traces? If you look at confusion, and you know what tumult is, if, if every one of us were to kind of, and, and it would be a lot of tumult and a lot of, that is what he's describing. And when you have jealousy and selfish ambition, you have disorder and every evil practice, Every evil practice traces to conflict within the ranks of leadership. It's not a small matter. That's why James is concerned with the tongue. In that day, people had a different sense for words. Words were not taken for granted as much as they are. Primitive people have a sense words are almost magic. And in a way, they are. In a way, they are. You might have images of a person. Images that allow you to feel warmly about them, to feel close, to, to want to be part of them. If I come, listen to what I can do with the word. If I come wanting to elevate myself or cut that person down, if I say, I hate to say this, but I need to say something about person X. Now, there's a person now that you feel some closeness to. And if I tell you, it really could change the way you look at that individual. You know what that comes close to being? Magic. Five minutes ago, you felt close to them. I told you some things. And now you think about that person, and your whole relationship with that person changes. I think primitive people might have had it right. Would you agree with me? Words are incredibly powerful. They alter our reality. And that's why words about God are 
incredibly important. Who did Jesus go after? Those who claimed to speak on God's behalf. Why was that? Because if you hear something about God, now, in order to believe things about God, you need to hear things about him, right? And belief in the Christian life is everything. If I say things that change your image of God, what have I done? I have altered your ability to believe. Would you agree with me? Words are incredibly powerful. And the same thing in relating with people. That's why James says the things he does. Uh, words are powerful, and it's why slander is dangerous and prohibited. We'll look at this verse later on in the series, James 4.11. Brothers, says, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. You know what slander means? I looked that up in the, in the, in the, in the dictionary online. Slander is to make false or damaging statements about someone. False or damaging statements about someone. That's what slander is. And it's kind of, if it's true, we don't see it as slander as much. Biblically, the word slander literally and just means to speak against someone, to speak evil of someone. The Bible, in, in putting the crosshairs on slander, does not just target untrue statements about someone. But true statements about someone that either bring that person down or elevate the person that's saying it. Not just untrue statements, any evil or statement that, that tears somebody down rather than builds them up. Includes, again, true statements that impugns a person's character um, again, what we say is very important. I'm going to close with this. There's three things. I've said a couple times. Three gates through which we ought to require a tale about someone to pass. Three questions that you ask before hearing something and passing it on. The first thing is, is it true? And check it out. Okay, I've heard this thing. I'm not sure it's true. So if you were going to pass something on to someone, that's something that might stop you in place. Is it true? I don't know if it's true. So I'm not going to pass it on. But say if it were true, you know it's true. There's a second thing. Is it necessary? Is it necessary for me to pass this on? Will it protect anyone? Will it change anything? Is this a person that can do anything about the matter I'm going to tell them about? If, it, if, it, if they're not going to be able to do anything about it, it's not going to pass the necessary test. If you have a concern about someone doing something to someone, and it's true, and it might protect the person by passing it on, it would pass the necessary test. No, I really need you to know X. Okay? So... If it passes the necessary test, there's one more test. Is it kind? Is it kind? Is it going to relieve the burden of someone by protecting someone? 
Um, if you want to live the good life, Joe, come on up. You want to evidence deeds and the gentleness that comes from wisdom? Count to three. Count to three. Before you say anything about anyone, words are very, very powerful. One, is it true? Two, is it necessary? Three, is it kind? Can you do that with me? One, two, three. Father, thank you for um, your word. You tell us things to believe. You tell us the things that are important relative to being the individuals you would have us to be. Pray that you would teach us wisdom so that we could endure in places that we would rather not be in, that we can be less reactive in those places, not that we like it, but that we have a tolerance. We develop a tolerance to stay in places that we might not want to be. It seems like that is at the root of wisdom. Wisdom allows us to deal with ourselves and others gently. It allows us to 